I think having a, a site with great views is really appealing. Um, and I think, you know, that would be a massive marketing draw to, to have something like that. But um, there's, there's lots of reasons why that's not practical. All policy tends to be different. They, they, they all try to reinvent the wheel for some reason. It's not just all national policy. It's all very, very local, very specific. And usually it's not, um, it's not black and white. There's always a little bit of um, ambiguity in the policy that I think is there to give planners a little bit of wiggle room here and there. The sustainability aspect is something that more and more councils are putting more and more um, emphasis on. So um, when you're looking for land, if you are near a bus stop or a train station, then that's, that's really good, that's really helpful. Hello and welcome back to the Glampatech podcast. Uh, it's been a little while since we've done one of these. I'm afraid the glamping show 2021 has sort of taken priority at the company. Uh, we had a really good time there last month speaking to lots of prospective site owners and even some old clients of ours. Um, so we've had lots of business through that and uh, it's been sort of full steam ahead with glamping show leads over the last month or so. But we are trying to get back to a more regular podcast routine now uh, so this is the first of that and then hopefully we carry on at the usual schedule moving forwards uh, today's guest is on for his i believe his third appearance ali young uh, co-founder and director of glampitect and nc 500 pods uh, if you want to listen to his previous episodes you can go back and have a listen to those but today we're going to dig specifically into buying land um that's partly come about because we spoke to so many people at the glamping show who want to start a glamping site but don't have land and don't really know where to start and it's a lot more complicated than just picking the first nice piece of land that you come across uh, so we're going to talk about that the kind of things that you should be looking out for the pitfalls in the process and we picked the right person to speak to today on that because when he was looking for his second site of the nc 500 pond pods brand in brora um he had to go on a bit of a land search as well with his business partner, Callum. Um, so he's in a good position to talk to us about these kind of things. But before we get into the specifics, could you please, Ali, just run us through the process that you went through when you were looking for land for your second glamping pod site? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Um, so, yeah, our, our second site in, in Brora, um, our search criteria was probably a little bit different because um, we, we were on the North Coast 500 route and we wanted to stay there and for, for a different site. Um, so we were kind of bound by where we were, were searching for, but um, we ended up um, having, you know, trying to, to set up relationships with estate agents um, to, to, you know, be first to hear if there was new bits of land. Um, and that was that had mixed results. Um, I think eventually we did um, we did end up um, finding this piece of land through um, our relationship with an estate agent. So that that was the, the, the that was ultimately successful. Although there were some quirks to that along the way that we'll, we'll probably get into later in, in our discussion. But uh, uh, there's certainly lots of other ways that um, you can look for land, and we. We're now looking for another piece of land for for our next site, and um, we we're, we're using different different methods to to look for land now because uh, although having a good relationship with an estate agent is is good, um, it's certainly not the the whole market, and um, we want to we want to try and get the the best piece of land possible we can, and that means speaking to everybody really. 
Great. And yeah, I said in the intro there that it's not the case of just picking the first nice plot of land that, that you see. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Uh, but could you just tell us why it's not all about appearance when you're looking for land suitable for a glamping site? Yeah, so I think it's quite normal for, for people to have a, a vision in their minds of what they want their glamping site to be. Um, and um, sometimes you can look at a piece of land and that can align quite well with your vision and you can see it working really well and maybe it's got great views and that's going to attract lots of guests and guests will love this about the, the, the site or they'll love something else about it. Um, but quite often that is, you know, completely polar opposite to what a, a planner would make of, of your proposal based on the site features, the, the area, the, the policy for that piece of land. So there's, there's loads of things to consider when looking at a piece of land um, and I think it's it's natural for people to jump to the kind of business side of it rather than the the planning or the construction or or the access even and all of these things are really important um, and can really influence um, whether or not your your site's going to gain planning approval um, and ultimately you know be possible right and so before we dig into specifics um could you just run us through a brief list of, of the kind of things that you might be wanting want to look out for uh, when you're looking for land and then we can you know dive into um, those on an individual basis yep no absolutely um so the the first thing's probably that the land designation so i'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail shortly but things like is it green belt is it an area of outstanding natural beauty um is there any other kind of specific policy that would be preventative for for a tourist accommodation site there um so that's the, that's the first thing um flood risk is another one that's not always immediately obvious um so there are ways and means of, of checking that um access is a big one um you need to if you, if you need to if you need to put in a new access point then having good kind of visibility of, of the the road that you want to join onto is really important um, gradient is another another big one, so that can have implications for drainage um, as well as um, you know how how you're going to site your units on on a slope. Are you going to excavate a piece of the land? Are you going to build the level up? Uh, and there's pros and cons of doing each. Um, and as well, um, you know the gradient is also a factor for for planning. If your if your units are going to be on the side of a hill it's more than likely they're going to stand out against the, the skyline and probably be seen to be more impactful um, for, for the landscape. So uh, also things like power, water, um, how, how close are you to a grid connection? Uh, and if it's far away, what are, what are the implications? How much power can you get to that site? Um, so that's, that's probably the, the main ones. I know that's quite a lot already. But uh, like I said, there's lots to consider. And when you're looking for land, you have to be quite objective on, on stuff like this, not just fall in love with, with the, the, the location and the, and the ideas in your head. Right. So the first thing you mentioned there is land designation. Um, to someone who has no idea what that means, could you define what is meant by land designation? Yeah, certainly. So um, when, when a council creates their planning policy, they, they quite often split their... Uh, council area up into to sections or areas and they will assign certain pieces of, of of the area to different pieces of policy so if it's um, really pretty countryside it's quite likely that it's going to be green belt or um, uh, an area of outstanding natural beauty where planning policy is specifically for that area 
um, tends to be much more restrictive to any form of development. Uh, it could be that there is a protected species on the land and there'll be specific policy for that, which again could be quite restrictive for your for your glamping idea. Um, and it's the same thing with um, archaeological archaeological um, artifacts. If there's anything like that nearby that's been found historically, that whole area could be covered by specific policy um, to oh, you know minerals below the ground that need to be protected. So, so the policy is all kind of geared towards protecting what's there for for future generations, really, um, so that uh, it will be. Um, quite a consideration if you want to be glamping or any form of development on that land. It doesn't necessarily mean if you, a piece of land you find does have those designation, designations that you, you won't be able to get planning permission, but it'll certainly make it a little bit trickier and uh, it'll mean that your planning application will need to be really thorough and have a really good kind of justification for, for putting it the site there. So uh, that, that's kind of where um, I think Glamptech comes into it. We've, we see loads of planning applications that have had to overcome policy like this. So we've got quite a good idea of what to do when there is one of these bits of designation that makes a, a site tricky. So um, so yeah, I think I think that's the, that's the point is if you do have a bit of land that you're wanting to develop, um, speak to speak to an industry expert and um, that's, your, that's your best best chance of, of overcoming the, the tricky policy. What are some examples of land designations that can be tricky during the planning process? Um, so green belt's probably the the most common one people will come across, and um, the this kind of filters down from national planning policy, so it affects affects the whole of the UK. And there, there, the wording is that there's a presumption against development in these areas. So usually there has to be. Uh, very good reason or very special circumstances is the, the terminology for, for overcoming or overturning that policy and allowing the development to go ahead. So um, again, council policy does vary and some councils are more, um, I suppose the word is lenient with that policy, but um, and will allow it for, for less of a, a special circumstance. But I've seen things like um, you know, scout huts that want to expand um, to allow parents to stay and, you know, um, for, for like weekend um, activities and things like that. Um, something that's helping the community as well as, you know, rather than just the developer, I, th I think is where that comes into it. So um, they, generally the, the planning departments will kind of take a, a step back and view everything, you know, for, as a, a bigger picture. But there has to be a benefit for the area in terms of people that live there, the economy, the the, the biodiversity, ecology, that kind of thing. That it all has to be to add up to a positive story that is a net benefit. Um, other other kind of um, typical policy we see that can be restrictive if there's um, um, scientific interest. So again, that could be biological or some other kind of um, scientific interest that uh, means that that area has to be protected and there's a specific set of policy that will be, uh, has to be satisfied before before a development can go ahead. So it's, it's all quite specific to, to the council that you're in um, and even to the, the, the area within the council that you are. So um, all policy tends to be different. They, they, they all try to reinvent the wheel for some reason. It's not just all national policy. It's all very, very local, very specific. And usually 
it's not um, it's not black and white. There's always a little bit of um, ambiguity in the policy that I think is there to give planners a little bit of wiggle room here and there. But it means that it's very hard for us to say sometimes that yes, that'll be okay for a glamping development or no, it won't. So it's always a little bit subjective. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasise at the end there as well, how it's very much a council by council basis. Um, you know, one council's view of an area of outstanding natural beauty might be a lot more lenient or a lot stricter than the council down the road. Um, so it's really important to focus on your specific council. And that's something that we do in our feasibility studies where we, we you know, we trawl through the local council's policies. Um, moving on to the next one that you mentioned, which was flood risk. Uh, how on a general note, how does flood risk affect the suitability of land for a glamping site? Yeah, so an interesting one. Um, if there's some history of flooding um, and, you know, there, there are government um, produced maps that will show you where the flood risks are. Um, so if there's some minor risk of flooding, usually that can be overcome with the risk assessment or, um, you know, some other justification. Uh, but it's it's very unlikely that if there's a high risk of flooding that you're you're going to be able to, to develop on it, and that's any kind of development um, without you know very expensive flood risks being designed and built. So it, it can get quite restrictive and quite complicated very quickly. Um, but you know the, the the idea here is that you're protecting the the people that are going to be using the site. So you don't want to come on your holiday and all of a sudden be. A meter underwater. Although that said, um, some of the justification uh, for for developing in a flood risk for for this kind of development for tourist accommodation purposes, uh, it's it's a little bit different to housing, for example, because if you're if a storm's coming and you live there, you, there's not much you can do. You're you're going to have to just sit out the, the storm and and see what happens. But if you're going on holiday and the storm's coming, you can just stay at home and not go to where. Um, where these pods are in, in a higher flood risk area, for example. So a little bit of kind of management can come into it as well when it comes to um, tourist accommodation, but but typically that's a small kind of offsetting of the bigger issue of the, the flood risk is there, whether you like it or not, and there's not an awful lot you can do other than maybe try and raise the, the level of the units a little bit so that at least they're out of the flood zone a little. Sometimes that can help. Um, generally, it's quite tough to... Um, develop in an area where there's high flood risk and if, if the land is a bit larger um, and there are patches of flood risk rather than the whole of the land being in a high risk flood zone there are things you can do around that right as well in terms of maybe siting the units in the areas of the land where there is less of a flood risk yeah absolutely um, um it's just common sense really isn't it if, if you if you do have land that's a little bit higher in terms of uh, gradients or a little bit further away from the flood zone makes absolute sense to position them there. Um, sometimes that can be conflicting with other aspects of the site. So, um, you know, it might mean that they're a little bit more prominent against the landscape, the, the units I mean. So, so that can be a little bit kind of um, good in one sense and bad in another when it comes to planning. But uh, yeah, absolutely makes sense to, to move away from flood, flood zones if you have the, have the space to do so. Right, and you mentioned gradient there. Let's move on to that one now. Um, as a layman, if I was to hear, you know, think about a, a piece of land that is nice and hilly, really steep, but you know, you can put your units on, on right on the top with a really nice view of the countryside. That sounds perfect, uh, but I don't think it's as as easy as that, is it? Uh, no, unfortunately, it's not. Um, I, I agree. I think you know, from 
both from a a person that likes to go on holiday on these types of holidays and 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 from a kind of business owner um i think having a, a site with great views is really appealing um and i think you know that would be a massive marketing draw to, to have something like that but um there's there's lots of reasons why that's not practical um firstly you know access if you're you're coming from a, a road that's likely that uh you know you're going to have to build paths from wherever you have your car park up to up to the units and how do people get there how is that going to be wheelchair accessible makes it makes it a lot harder and probably a lot more expensive too if you're having to you know build lots of pathways to get up the up a hill um but that's probably secondary to the again back to the the, the planning um implications so um, as I said earlier, that can make them more prominent against the landscape, which usually um, conflicts with um, landscape policy. Um, and, you know, to get around that, normally you would shield the, the site by planting trees and hedgerows and things. Um, but again, that's that that can be a little bit out of character if, you know, other parts of the, um, the top of a hill, for example, don't have that. It's not going to help. It's not going to blend in with anything else. So. Um, can be harder to, to 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 design a site that will be compliant with policy if it's on a on a gradient. Um, also, um, there's some kind of construction challenges to it too. So if it's too steep, drainage becomes challenging. Um, so there's I think it's one in ten gradient is kind of ideal for drainage. So for every every meter of drop, you know, ten meters horizontally is kind of Kind of the ideal um, gradient that you want for for effective drainage. If it's too steep, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't work properly. If it's too shallow, the the liquids drain away, but the solids don't. So um, that that can be a challenge. Um, as can you know creating level platforms. So our, our first site, um, we had a bit of this. We we completely underestimated the gradient. When we looked at the site to begin with, it looked completely usable there was a bit of a bit of a slope a few undulations but we didn't really think anything of it we just assumed that'll all be flattened no problem and we can can plonk some plod some <laughs> plonk some pods on um but uh, ended up that because we had neighbors we had to excavate rather than raise the level up um to to control the sound a bit and that meant that we needed retaining walls so that was fine. We we put them in. Um, they had to be designed by an engineer and kind of rubber stamped. And they were, it, it wasn't brickwork we could use because of the height of them. We had to use steel reinforced concrete. So the cost of the wall alone was £14,000. And um, that was something we hadn't budgeted for. So it was a bit of a shock at the time. Um, but we were, we were able to, 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 to manage it somehow by stealing and borrowing a bit of money um but uh, but yeah i mean if you if you had the choice between a flat piece of ground and um one that was quite hilly i would probably go for the flat one every time um even if it means sacrificing some some better views um i think glamping's a big enough draw just now that um you know that, that you're not going to sacrifice an awful lot of demand by doing that uh, one thing that we actually focus quite a lot on in our feasibility studies is access issues um i think they can be a bit of a, a showstopper when it comes to planned applications um so what what do we mean by access in this context and what would you have to look out for when you're trying to find a piece of land with suitable access sure so um i, I guess i'll answer this in two parts um the first part will be traditional access so how you're going to drive to the site 
um, so vehicular access, and the second part will be public transport. So, um, for, firstly, the most most councils will insist that there is at least one space per pod or per per unit um, when you design your site. Um, so, so that's fine. Um, but then there's also the the kind of um, the road safety element as well. So if you need to put in a new access point, or even if there's already one there, um, the highways department are probably going to look at this in quite a bit of detail because they want to make sure that the if, if it's a new junction you're putting in, that it's done safely and has the required sight lines to the left and, and right um, that, you, that you, know, you need for that. And that they can be quite long distances that you need to see for, for a 60 mile an hour road, which most of kind of rural UK seems to be in national speed limit. You need 250 meters vision each way unrestricted. Um, now, most rural roads aren't straight, so you don't have that. Um, so, you know, we you can kind of mitigate it to some extent by doing a road survey or traffic survey, so measuring how many cars go by in a given period and what their what their average speed is. And if it's lower than the, the kind of speed limit of the road, sometimes that can be enough to allow the, the highways department to relax the, the visibility distances. Um, so it can all get very technical very quickly, but basically um, if you're if you're on a very twisty kind of um, country lane, then it's probably not as good as a nice wide straight piece of road. So um, when you're going to look at a piece of land, that's something to bear in mind. And the other part of it is that they will also, even if it's a new junction, uh, an existing junction, sorry, they will consider what effect the, the increased traffic from the development will, will cause on the area. So the, the planning term is traffic intensification. Typically, not an issue, um, but again, it's justification that you're going to have to provide um, potentially, um, and you know, explain that we, you know, tell, tell the story up front in your planning application. We don't believe this will cause an issue because X, Y, Z, and, and usually it's usually it's okay. Um, most most you know kind of A and B roads are absolutely absolutely big enough to not see any impact from from a small glamping site. So. So that's kind of the, the, the private vehicle side of access. Um, and, you know, like, like I said, the council will probably stipulate that you need to have at least one parking space, which weirdly contradicts the, the thing I'm about to say. Um, they'll also insist that people can access your site um, by means other than just private car. Um, so this ties into um, council and kind of government um, policy to, to improve on sustainability. So encouraging people to use public public transport or to cycle or to walk. So um, catering for these people can be quite important. And you know, if you're near a public right of way, that can be good for encouraging walkers and you can take credit for that in your planning application. Although you might have to also um, detail how, you, how you'll maintain a public right of way and not affect it, affect it at all during construction. Um, but the, the sustainability aspect is something that more and more councils are putting more and more um, emphasis on. So um, when you're looking for land, if you are near a bus stop or a train station, then that's that's really good. That's really helpful. Okay, now let's talk about services. Um, so water, drainage, power. Um, how does the particular piece of land affect um, your ability to access those? Um, generally, it's that the piece of land is not too much of an issue as long as it's not too isolated. 
So if you're nearby to other properties or um, farm buildings or any, or if you can, if you're going on a site visit to, to look at a new piece of land or a piece of land for sale, if you can see power lines um, nearby, then there's a good chance that you're not going to have much of a much of a hard time of getting power to the site. Um, it might be that you have to go over a few different people's land to dig a trench and run a cable, um, and that would be you know require written permission or, or wheel leaves to do that. But uh, so that, that can be a whole challenge in itself. But generally, if there's power nearby or evidence of power nearby, you're probably going to be okay. Uh, how much power they can give you is another story, um, depending on what you're, you're planning for, for, you know, if you want really high-end pods with underfloor electric heating and electric water heaters, the, the power demands go up really quickly. So if you're planning a big site, it's really good to um, understand the power requirements up front. Um, if, uh, if it's a smaller site, you're probably going to be okay with what's in the area, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really wise to contact the the, the provider early to get an understanding of that. Um, and water is harder to assess because you can't see it. Typically, everything's run below ground. Um, but, but the same kind of logic applies. If there are buildings nearby, they're going to have a, a water solution. So it's likely that you'll be able to do what they've done. Didn't you have an issue on one of your sites with, was it the electricity or the internet supply? Um, and you had to change your plans or something like that? Yeah, we did. So this was our first site, um, and it was, again, a very remote location um, the, in, the, in the highlands of Scotland. And uh, there, there was, believe it or not, um, a BT phone cable that, you know, a network that runs past the site, because um, we're actually very close to an old BT phone box, even though that's not really used these days. Um, uh, but the, it just wasn't enough. We, we wanted four or five copper connections caught you know individual lines and uh you know there was a lot of communication breakdown we were told by the person on the on the other end of the phone that oh yeah there's 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 a supply there you can have whatever you like turned out there were only actually two available slots which weren't enough and when they came to install it the first time they kind of scratched their head and drove away and that just seemed to keep happening and we weren't getting anywhere so months went by um, from our first point of contact, and we still didn't have our um, our phone lines installed. So we explored some other options. 4G, Wi-Fi um, would probably have been okay. Not ideal, I would, would say. Probably probably want something a bit faster, but um, we, that would have been okay. But because we were so remote, we didn't have the signal there. So we ended up going with um, a satellite broadband um, solution, which, you know, I was a little bit skeptical about both in terms of cost and in terms of performance, but the cost has been really reasonable, actually, I think, you know, for, we have a, a Wi-Fi network for each of our four pods, um, an individual network for each one. Um, so it's, I think it's 105 pounds a month and, um, that, you know, dividing that by four, one for each, for each unit, then it's, it's pretty reasonable. It's almost comparable to, to what I pay for our, our Wi-Fi at home. So, um, pleased with that, and the performance has been fine. Um, the, once the dish went out of alignment when there were really high winds, but uh, we've figured out how to put that right, and we've built a kind of protective structure around it now, and it hasn't happened again, touch wood. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's been a, a very quick system to install and set up, and it was a pleasure to deal with people that did it after trying our, you know, trying for so long with uh, the, the BT solution. So, um, 
yeah, lot, lots of different options are available if there's nothing in the area for, for telecoms, for power and water. Um, but I would say that if you do have the ability to connect to a network, um, you know, a nearby grid connection for, for power or water, water network, then that's got to be your first protocol. It's um, cheapest solution, no doubt, and the easiest and uh, probably the, the most reliable as well. Excellent. I think we've run through the list of things that you mentioned to look out for um, at the start. One thing I think we didn't mention is the size of the land itself. Uh, and obviously this is going to vary depending on the style of site that you want and how many units you want to put on. But what's this rough kind of guide for um, the amount of space you want per unit on your site? Yeah, sure. So um, we, we've done some sums on this and it basically the, 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 the philosophy that we've used was you need a certain amount of fire gap between units and um, you can't just have them as close as you like. Um, so, you know, that, that again varies from region to region, but uh, typically it's about five meters you want between the units. So we've kind of done, a, done some sums to, to work out a rule of thumb on that. Um, so taking into account a bit of, bit of space, you know, paths and parking as well, um, you probably want uh, about 200 square meters per unit. Um, now, in terms of um, acres, it's a really, really small number. I can't remember what, exactly what the conversion is there, but um, for your, your typical four pod site or four shepherd hut site, whatever you're planning, um, I would say you'd need about a thousand meters squared. Um, so that would include maybe some drainage as well if you had to put in a, a private drainage system. Uh, so the good news is that most pieces of land are much, much bigger. Um, our first site that I've mentioned a few times um, it was less than 0.2 of an acre, and we have four pods on there with the required spacing. Um, ideally, we'd probably space them out a little bit more if we could, but we were it's quite a small small site and we're quite restricted. So yeah, 200 meters squared per, per unit is a good rule of thumb, um, but if you want to be a little bit more kind of exclusive and you know give your, give your guests a little bit more privacy, yeah, space that out a bit more. Um, but yeah, from typically what I see from looking at pieces of land, um, they're, they're, they're more than big enough usually. Brilliant. And we've, we've looked at the kind of factors that go into when you're searching for a, a suitable piece of land for a glamping site. Is there one pitfall in particular that you say you should look out for when going through that process? Um, the, all, all the things are quite important. I, I, think, I think gradient's a big one. Because there, there it seems like there's more that can go wrong with with gradient than uh, than than the others, but they're they're all quite important. Um, yeah, I think I think that's 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 really it. Um, as a general general rule, I think you have to consider everything. Um, so I don't think there's one one big thing to look out for, but gradient seems to be bigger than most. It seems to have seems to have implications for, for, for planning and for construction and for operating the site. So, so that's quite a big one. Um, I, don't, I don't really have a rule of thumb of how, how steep is too steep, but, uh, but um, yeah, if you're, if you're on a very hilly site, I would say that's probably not the best. Right, and we've mentioned a couple of times uh, throughout this episode, uh, feasibility studies. Uh, they're the first point of contact that we have with a client, um, and that does a range of things, but what we're going to focus on here is the planning and construction side of things. Um, so Ali, what can we do for someone who comes with us with a piece of land in mind and wants to know whether it's suitable for a glamping site? 
Yeah, well, a couple of things. We, we actually do have that request quite a lot. So if it's somebody that's looking to buy a piece of land and it's maybe going to a closing date quite soon, um, you know, we, we do quite a lot of feasibility studies. We've got a lot kind of, um, lot, lot of feasibility work to do. So we can jump onto that straight away, but typically um, we, we ask for, you know, um, a premium to, to expedite the service. So um, if it's something somebody's interested in, I would say have a, have a chat with us and we'll see what we can do, see what, see what the current workloads are like and see what, what it would cost for us to jump on to, to have a look at it. But we, we would look at that in quite a bit of detail. Um, and you know, that would give you a really good steer on um, whether or not it's worth buying this piece of land with the intention to do, you know, to start a glamping site on it. Perfect. Well, um, thank you again for coming on. It's a good one. Uh, hopefully it's, it's helped, um, you know, people who, who are in that position of, you know, that we spoke to a lot of people at the glamping show who want to start a glamping site, but are looking for land. Hopefully that helps them. Uh, and if they have any questions, uh, they can get in touch. Ali, your email address is ali at glamtech.co.uk, I imagine. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. E-L-I. Yeah. Um, and then Glampertech is contact at glampertech.co.uk. And you can give us a ring with the number on the website as well if you have any um, questions. So, yeah, thanks again, Ali. Um, and I'm sure you'll be on for a fourth time at some point, but um, maybe a few months down the line. Excellent. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Glamper Tech Podcast. I hope you enjoyed and that you found value in today's episode. If you did, feel free to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as it really helps us move up the podcast rankings. Thank you.